It's also a book about identity, like who we are and what we're supposed to be about. But ultimately, it's a book about speaking and listening, listening and speaking, both to God and with God. And so this book is going to follow the story of the people of God. But let's set the stage here for a second. The dramatic stuff has passed. The stuff that they make movies about, right? The Red Sea has been parted. The people have passed through. Woohoo! They're free from Egypt, right? They've lived in the wilderness for 40 years. God brought them into the promised land. And under the leadership of Joshua, they conquered all their enemies. And they are now living in the promised land. And everybody has their inheritance. Namely, everybody's got their plot of land. Woohoo! right? Build a house. Good times. Everything's good, exactly as it's supposed to be. Now, these great leaders, Moses and Joshua, they're long since dead, okay? And there's no temple yet, but there is the priesthood and the tabernacle, this large kind of like portable church, right? But without that hard, fast leadership of somebody like Moses or Joshua and being scattered all over the place in the promised land, it's no surprise that people aren't doing a very fabulous job of living up to their end of the bargain, namely being faithful to God's direction law. And so they find themselves in trouble, overtaken by enemies time and time again. Like, here come the Philistines, or here come, you know, whoever. And they would come and they would, like, conquer Israel, right? And so every time they would find themselves in trouble, God would send a new judge. He would raise up this leader, and they would conquer the bad guys, and then that judge would die, and they live in peace for about 15 minutes until the next bad guy would come, right? Okay? And so you would think of the judges like Samson and Gideon and Deborah. Those are some of the judges that God raised up to help Israel. But you know, once the judge died, there was no like succession of judges. God would just raise them up in a time of distress. Uh, But during those ordinary days, the priests, they were the ones that were supposed to help the people live into the faithfulness to God. But not so much, right? Because like the rest of Israel, the priests were going their own way, taking concubines and committing all these acts of violence. And they were abusing their position by like stealing, essentially stealing from the offering plate. Like that's frowned upon. Okay. Um, They were just awful stuff. Abuse of power, selfish, carnal behavior. And it is so bad that at the end of the book of Judges, scripture tells us very simply, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Sound vaguely familiar? So that is the state of things. There is no king. There is no leader of any kind because the priests are not up to the job. And everybody's doing what the Pastor Stephanie version would say, what feels right in their hearts. Like that's their standard of behavior, right? Not a good way to go. And there is no direction for the people of God. And so their identity as the people of God is buried under layers and layers of rebellion and apathy. You know what apathy is? It's that attitude that just says, I don't care because I got better things to do, right? And so here we come to 1 Samuel. Oh, guys, get excited because there is something stirring in this book. I can feel it rumbling. The people of Israel, if appearances are any indication at all, is dead. Okay? Dead. Just dead. There is no hope. There is no future. There is no direction. There is no vocation. It is dead. But remember, remember, God is a God of resurrection. Nothing is so far gone. 
Nothing is so dead, dog, dead as to be beyond the reach of God's resurrecting hand. And so you would think as you open up the book of Samuel that being titled the book 1 Samuel, it might be about a guy named, I don't know, Samuel. But it isn't. The very first story starts out as many Bible stories do with a barren, broken woman. And her name was Hannah, a name that means grace or favor. But it was kind of an ironic name because Hannah surely did not appear to be favored in the slightest. For although she was loved by her husband, she was childless. And she ultimately had those three strikes against her for that time in that culture. She was rural, meaning she was from the sticks. She was female, she was powerless, and she was barren. And so it is fitting that our story starts out with someone like Hannah, somebody with nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table, because that is exactly the same position as the people of God, Israel. They are barren, they are hopeless, they have no future. They are at a dead end. They are stuck with no means of moving forward. Have you ever been there? Well, in Hannah's story, we hear echoes of the story of Sarah from Genesis. Do you remember Sarah from Genesis? She too was barren, no future, no hope. She desperately wanted a child. But if you remember the story of Sarah, she was no lollygagger. She saw her dead end and she set to work to open the future herself, scheming and manipulating and hustling to attempt to give her husband a child via her slave Hagar. Remember that? She said, I can't have a kid, so I'm going to go ahead and let my slave have a kid on my behalf. And Ishmael was born. And ultimately, finally, she did herself bear a child, Isaac, but she had already made a real mess of things. You see, although Sarah and Hannah's position sounds similar, both being barren, powerless women, their posture could not be more different. Because in the face of death and despair and hopelessness, Hannah does not scheme or manipulate or hustle like Sarah does. Instead, Hannah comes to the Lord and presents herself before the Lord. A bold act, but no other woman in scripture has done this, has come before the Lord. It says in chapter 1, verse 9, it says, After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, that's where the temple or the tabernacle was, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall neither drink wine nor intoxicants and nor no razor, shall touch his head. She poured out her heart to the Lord, asking the Lord, remember me. Please do not forget. Remember me. Well, right now, Jojo and Jack's favorite movie right now is Coco. Has anybody seen Coco? Yeah? It's based on like this Mexican heritage and it's ultimately about family and separation and loss and forgiveness. But anyway, the main song of this whole thing is called Remember Me. It says, remember me. And he has a little guitar, right? And um, it is written by a dad who is this traveling musician. And his greatest desire is that his daughter, his little girl, Coco, that he leaves at home, won't forget him while he's gone. But will, in fact, remember him and call to mind his great love for her. He just wants her to remember him. 
Now, Hannah, this is not the same thing. This is not Hannah's fear. The remembering that she is talking about here is not about forgetfulness, as if God could or would forget his people. But in scripture, when someone asks God to remember them, it is soteriological undertones, which is such a fancy word that just means salvation. When someone says, God, remember me, they're saying, God, don't forget, please act on my behalf. If someone asks God to remember them, they are saying, God, remember me, save me, remember me and act on my behalf. Don't forget me and my struggle. Remember me and act. Okay? And so goes Hannah's prayer. Lord, remember me. And God, act on my behalf. And so grant me a son and promise I'll give him back to you to serve you. And so then, in verse 19, it says this. They again rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. The Lord hears, the Lord sees, the Lord remembers, and the Lord resurrects. And then three or four years later, once Samuel is weaned, Hannah brings her beloved son to the house of the Lord in Shiloh and leaves him there in service to the Lord. Can you even imagine that? That this is your promised son. He was given to us this precious gift. And you said, God, just give me the son and I'll give it back to you. And most people renege. Let's be honest. Most people renege on that kind of promise. But she didn't. She brought him to the Lord, fulfilling her promise. And get this. As she is leaving, as she is walking away from her little boy and going back to her home, she sings this song to the Lord. And it will remind you, I promise, of Mary's song in Luke. It says this. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord. No one besides you. There is no rock like our God. So talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. For the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Shoal and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low, he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversary, shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Hannah's song of praise. 
Now, there are a thousand things that I want to say about this song. How it foreshadows Mary's Magnificat and Luke. How it highlights God's power both to kill and to bring life. How it shows how God chooses time and time again the least likely candidate, like a rural barren female, but one whose posture is rightly oriented toward the Lord. But most of all, what I want you to see in this particular passage is at verse 9 where it says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. Not by might. Did you catch that? Not by might. Resurrection does not come by hustle, by manipulation, by schemes, or even hard work. Resurrection comes because God in his mercy wills it to be so. And it comes to those whose posture before the Lord is one of humble obedience. And this isn't just about Hannah. Do you see that? This is about God's people. Yes, Hannah's story is resurrected. After she drops off Samuel, she goes home and has five more kids. Pretty cool. And her heart and her home are full of love and life. But Hannah's prayer, her song of praise, was also about Israel. About God seeing God's people who were stuck and trapped in this dead and no future space of sin and rebellion. And of God's gracious act of resurrection to bring his people to new life. Something brand new is about to burst forth. Brand spanking new creation creation out of nothing. Now, theologians call this kind of creation ex nihilo. And that's not just like a reassembly of old parts, okay? It is not just a reviving of something that is just sick and sleepy. It is resurrection and creation out of nothingness. And so this text and the whole story of God actually declares that God creates like that, ex nihilo. He makes something out of our nothing. When we face dead ends caused by our own rebellion and sin, when we face hopeless situations caused by injustice, when we face death of everything we had planned, God's resurrection power, God's breath moves, stirring the waters like the waters of creation in Genesis. And God creates something out of nothing. So declares the prayer of Hannah, the favored one. But in our story, you'll see, if you're looking at 1 Samuel, we're not there yet. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. It says, now the boy Samuel, just got dropped off by mom, was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. There is a silence from on high. Have you ever experienced the silence of God? That God is just not talking. When you cannot hear from God, when it feels like God has gone on vacation and turned off his cell phone. Now, I won't pretend to have an all-adequate, all-encompassing answer to why God is sometimes silent. But I will say two things. Sometimes God is silent because God is waiting. God is waiting for that kairos moment, right? That, that at just the right time 
moment to act. And in the meantime of that silence, he is shaping us to be more faithful with each passing day as the spirit quietly stirs those waters, preparing us for what's to come, right? And what's to come, it still might not be the answer we want, but it doesn't mean God has not spoken. So sometimes silence is a waiting period. But sometimes silence, the problem isn't with the speaker, but it's with the listener. Because of our sin and our rebellion and our faithful, our failure to live Christ-centered lives on the ordinary days, not just those big crisis moments of faith, but the ordinary days, we become blind and deaf, numb to God's movement around us. The water might be stirring, but we can't tell. And so in this story, both things are true. God is waiting. He is subtly stirring the waters, anticipating that just the right moment to resurrect the people of God through this new leader, Samuel. But Eli, the priest, the leading priest, he is mostly blind and deaf, literally and metaphorically, okay? The difference is in how the silence of God is perceived in our posture, So let's look to the text. It'll show us the difference. Now, the boy Samuel, this is chapter 3, verse 1. He was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were not widespread. And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of of God was. Then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lie down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And so the Lord called to Samuel again, a third time. And he got up and he went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Do you feel that? The waters are stirring. The spirit is on the move. Creation out of nothingness, out of Israel's current state of things, is emerging. And Eli, this ancient priest, is losing his sight and his hearing. And like I said, both literally and spiritually. He is sleeping, in the text it says, he is sleeping far from the ark. He is off in his room. He is far from the physical place of God's presence. And I imagined him curled up on his pallet with his back to the ark, holding his body near. As he is achy with the years, the lights are dim and sounds are muffled, he does not hear the voice of the Lord. Okay? And then there's Samuel. He's not sleeping way off yonder. Instead, he is lying directly in the tabernacle, close to the ark, near to the Lord. This symbolic inclusion showing his hunger to be near to God, his desire to hear. And he is so quick to respond. Do you hear that? I wish my kids were that quick to respond when I call them. 
right? He's like, here I am, I'm here. Every time, three times in a row, right? He is so eager to respond to the voice of the Lord. And yet, he does not yet understand. He cannot discern what's happening. He is so young and he has no experience and he doesn't know the voice of the Lord. And it is only when Eli, who, hear this, is drawing from his past, not his current experience with God, but his past, offers direction that Samuel is able to respond to God. So what's the difference between Samuel and Eli? It's their posture. One man is tired. No eyes to see, no ears to hear what God is doing in this moment. He is resigned to the silence. He is resigned to the dead end of God's people. And he is resigned to a very bleak future. And over here we have this young man, a child really, who is postured as a ready and willing servant, fervently ready to respond to the direction of the Lord, eager to be near to the Lord and eager to hear God's voice and obey, posturing himself in such a way as to declare, hey, I am ready to listen. And so when God does finally speak, who is the one that hears? Is it the one who's postured against or the one who is postured toward? It's Samuel who hears the voice of the Lord. Now, I like to think that Samuel learned this posture not from his years under Eli's tutelage, but from his mom. Because even before he was conceived, Hannah was posturing herself to the Lord as a servant, ready to listen. I have no doubt that when he was still a little boy in the tents of his mother, he bore witness to his mom praying to God maintaining that posture of willing obedience, saying, yes, Lord, I will bring him to the temple. Yes, Lord, I say yes. And Samuel bore witness to her faithfulness. And so Samuel, when it comes to knowing how to posture himself appropriately before the Lord, he totally got it from his mom. But now that Samuel is postured and he's ready to listen to the Lord, what does the Lord actually say? And it is not good news. Let's read verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both the ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli and all I have spoken against concerning his house from beginning to end. For I told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. And so Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, and rightfully so, friends. But Eli called to Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you and more so also if you hide anything from all that he has told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And then Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And so as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. 
the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. That is one bummer of a first message to get from God. Hey, guess what? I'm going to strip away leadership from your mentor, Eli, and I will punish his house forever. Now go on. Make sure he gets the message. But the thing is, it's about Eli, but it's not just about Eli. It's about the people of God. God is declaring that what has been the era of rebellion and sin and disorder is done. The era of darkness and silence and confusion, it's done. It is Kairos time. It is just the right time for the old to pass away and the new to come into being. Now, some of you might say, some of you that have a little more experience living this life, that's an easy thing for a 33-year-old to say, let the old go die and bring on the new. But I'm not talking about age or traditions or music styles or anything petty like that. What I am talking about is about humbly and with gratitude releasing the past, but then turning to look to the future with hopeful expectancy. And that is hard for anyone, for any family, for any church, for any preacher in a military town. even a 33-year-old one like me, to experience God's new creation, to experience the power of the resurrection, we have to let the old die. And we have to face that death head on. Because what once was is no longer. And we have to be honest about that. And there are some things in the past that we're happy to dismiss, you know, say, adios and a kick in the pants, right? And then there are other things that we grieve over and we mourn their loss. And there is no doubt in my mind that Eli mourned what had been when he had led God's people faithfully. He mourned the future that he had imagined with his family. He had grieved how his sons had become thieves and adulterers. And Eli could have been angry and self-righteous, and he had called out Samuel for his audacity to have such a nasty message for him. But no, with humility, Eli accepted the judgment of the Lord. He accepted the death of what once was and would not be again. But... Death is never the end. At the end of chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, it says, The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Yes, death comes, but only to make room for the new thing that God wants to do. And that will make our ears tingle. And so after Samuel heard the word of the Lord, I imagine he laid on his pallet for the rest of the night, probably worrying himself into a tummy ache about how he was going to tell Eli the bad news, right? But then in verse 15, it says he got up and he threw open the doors of the house of the Lord. Maybe it was just stuffy and he needed some fresh air. But really... I think Samuel was declaring, it's a new day. The silence has passed. 
The Lord is speaking now. So throw open the doors. Samuel was ready to face the newness, this new thing that God was doing, not because he was particularly brave or insightful. Remember, he still needed Eli's help to even identify the voice of God. But because Samuel was rightly postured before the Lord, declaring that any resurrection that comes to me or to this people of God is not by might, but by the hand of the Lord. His posture was one of a servant, close at hand, ready to respond to the Lord's call. And when the Lord did call, Samuel did not shirk or hide or lollygag, but rather responded, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Hannah waited for resurrection and assumed a posture of praise. Eli yielded to God's will and assumed a posture of acceptance. And Samuel listened and spoke and assumed a posture of humble obedience in the face of this new wild thing that God was brewing. So as our passage ends today, the Spirit is stirring the waters. As the Spirit stirred the waters, the chaotic waters of the deep, preparing to unleash creation from nothingness. And today I trust that the Spirit is stirring the waters in you. I can imagine the thousand things that is stirring in your hearts, new jobs and big moves and retirements and empty nests, yet another day with precious but frankly exhausting little people, questions about your vocation and your education and your future. And maybe it still feels like silence. Maybe the water is looking awfully still to you. But take a cue from Hannah. Don't meddle, don't rush, and don't scheme, and do not hustle. But wait. Wait in a posture of obedience and praise. And perhaps like Eli, take a look inside. Is it possible that you are surrounded by the sound of silence because you have ceased to listen? You have ceased to see rightly and you have ceased to obey and you have ended up with a heart that has been hardened. Now hear me, silence from God does not always mean sin, but sometimes it does. And so it's worth a humble glance at the heart and let the Spirit speak. So whatever the reason for God's silence, the appropriate responsive posture is the same. Humble listening, waiting for the voice of the Lord, and a quick, joyful response to the call when it comes. Because when the moment is right, new creation will dawn. The breath of the Spirit will breathe resurrection life into what seems dead in and around you. And it will come. Not by might, but by the power and the grace of God. It is ordinary time, beloved. How we spend these ordinary days in Christ is how we will spend our Christian lives. Are we postured 
to listen and obey. Even today, the most ordinary, unremarkable of days, leaning into the truth, the promise that our salvation, our redemption, and the resurrection we need will come not by might, but by the gracious hand of God. Let us pray. God, we come before you acknowledging that there is some death. There are some things that we need to release to say thank you, Lord, and farewell to. Or some things that are even hard and we say, I'm so glad to walk away. But Lord, releasing the past and the old and what once was is hard. But Lord, we turn. We posture ourselves before you. And we look to the future with hopeful expectation, not because we have the skills we need to make it happen, to bring about new life and redemption and resurrection, but only because of your gracious hand, remembering us and acting on our behalf. So Lord, would you help us to lean into this promise of new life, of a better future, of a calling to something even greater that will make our ears tingle. And may we remember that it is never by might, but only by your gracious hand. Would you help us to posture ourselves to be in a position of humble, listening obedience, ready to respond when you call. Lord, you are so good and you are so faithful and you will speak. Help us to be listeners. We pray it in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Would you extend your hands to receive the benediction, the good word this morning? Beloved, may you go from this place and posture yourself before the Lord as a listener, humble and ready to obey. And may you cling to the promise that God saves not by our might, but by his gracious hand. Now go in action and go in peace. Amen.